Hi all, Thomas here. Just a quick disclaimer. Now, most of you will probably know that the show was on hiatus for quite a while. During that hiatus, I wasn't doing nothing for the show. Where I could, I was working on some episodes. And one of the series that I worked on was one called Technology, Inequality and Catastrophic Risks. And it brings together some of the themes that we've talked about in this show, how technology will influence society, how we can respond to global catastrophic risks. Um, These episodes were scripted before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I've decided that the best way to deal with this is to just release them as they were um, without modifying anything or changing them now. And then at the end, I will look at how some of these predictions and uh, influences and ideas might relate to our current situation. Um, So what you're getting really is a snapshot of a year or so ago when I first started working on these. And uh, hopefully, you know, you find it enlightening and can enjoy it. Okay. everybody and welcome to another episode of Physical Attraction. This week we're going to be continuing the series on technology, inequality and catastrophic risks and we're going to ask the question now about whether technology helps us. So just a little bit of a recap. Uh, last episode we talked about the Walter Scheidel book The Great Leveller and this uh, general thesis in this book that uh, inequality tends to increase in societies over time until some disaster or large-scale external shock to the system shakes things out and allows inequality to fall again. Yet we look around us now and we see that many of the trends and forces that shape our world in the next century are only going to increase inequality. So it's very unclear what uh, process is going to come along, what is going to come along and change uh, this historical cycle that has been identified, whereby only catastrophes are the things that seem to be able to decrease inequality. And it's kind of hard not to come to the conclusion that, at least in the countries where growing inequality is a problem, our institutions are generally terrible at dealing with it. Take our solution to the financial crisis of 2007-8, which was broadly a bailout of the banks and a process called quantitative easing. So, per the Bank of England, quantitative easing does not involve literally printing more money. Instead, we create new money digitally. So yeah, that's what happened there. The argument here was that the banks were too big to fail and would take down the whole complex system with them if they were able to fail and that they might have collapsed the entire global economy if they weren't rescued with spending and stimulus. Now, I'm not an economist, I don't know whether that's true or not, but this policy of quantitative easing, which essentially essentially sought to inject money into the economy by buying up assets owned by banks, regardless of whether or not it prevented the recession from getting even worse, it was certainly a solution that made the inequality problem worse. The stock market soared back up again, but wages have remained flat, and companies that have realised higher profits in the improved economy have then used that to buy back shares rather than voluntarily increasing wages for their workers. In other words, people with assets, who owned companies or at least shares in them, got richer while people without assets remained where they were before. Even a conservative paper in the UK noted that under quantitative easing, the least wealthy 10% gained £3,000 on average, while the wealthiest 10% gained £350,000 on average. Regardless of whether you think that quantitative easing is a sketchy redistribution of wealth to the top in the response to a crisis, or the only thing that could have got us out of the financial crisis of 2008, it's very difficult to argue that it's done anything to help income inequality. 
So I suppose the question comes back down to how much inequality you personally think is necessary or justifiable or sustainable within a society. Some inequality is certainly inevitable, but how much can society sustain? The crises that we're dealing with lately aren't doing anything to address the problem of rising inequality. In fact, pretty much everything that's going on at the moment is likely to cause rising inequality. Climate change disproportionately affects the poorest and least able to adapt, both because of where extreme weather events and extreme heat events in particular hit, and because the poorest nations disproportionately suffer when these natural disasters arise. If you're already struggling for food or water, climate shocks can prove fatal in a way that's less likely to kill people in wealthier nations. Within individual societies, the wealthiest are likely to be able to shield themselves from the effects of climate change. And of course, there's the fundamental fact that globally, this has historically been a problem disproportionately caused by the wealthy, where the impacts disproportionately fall on the poor. So this is all going to enhance inequality as time goes on. The system, and in fact most systems of government throughout history, if you think about Scheidel, are normally powerless to deal with rising inequality. It either cannot or it does not want to. Scheidel and the Great Leveller suggest that rising inequality only ever gets reversed by a violent catastrophe of some kind, but we don't want that, and we have no idea what it would look like. So in physics and philosophy, there's this concept called the anthropic principle. And in the same way that you have a weak and strong anthropic principle, I also think you have a weak and strong version of the inequality catastrophe connection, or historical determinism, or whatever you want to call it. So let me explain that a little bit. The anthropic principle is essentially this idea of, okay, well, how is it that the universe that we observe is clearly a universe in which humans can, can exist? How is it that all of the physical constants, all of the uh, various parameters that make up the universe have allowed complex chemistry to happen, have allowed uh, DNA to be a stable structure, have allowed our planet to exist at a certain radius for a certain amount of time for long enough that uh, intelligent life can evolve? And uh, in the weak anthropic principle, you notice that, well, obviously, if you're an observer, then you must be observing a universe that allows observers to exist. And that's not necessarily a strong statement of uh, connection between the causality. It's merely just pointing out the obvious fact that observers will only ever observe universes that exist. So there could be 20 billion universes out there. And the only ones in which observers would be observing would be ones where the observers would happen to notice, oh yes, it does seem to be the case that we can exist in this universe. That's the weak anthropic principle. Now the strong anthropic principle uh, goes a lot further and says that this connection is more fundamental, and that in fact uh, universes can only exist that can give rise to observers. And it's a lot more controversial, and obviously you can tell it's a lot more difficult to prove. And so... We're talking about now a weak and strong version of this uh, connection between inequality and catastrophe. So in the weak version, pretty much only violent catastrophes, wars, revolutions, plagues, or whatever, can reverse inequality for the reasons that Scheidel points out. So whenever you see inequality shrink, you'll find a catastrophe. But in the strong version, the rising inequality will eventually cause some of these catastrophes. The catastrophes are almost a safety valve for the rising inequality. This isn't too dissimilar to some of Marx's theory, which holds that under capitalism, inequality inevitably increases under a capitalist system until conditions become unbearable and there is a revolution. But I actually think that there are other mechanisms now, in the modern world, that are becoming more prevalent and more realistic, which will link together inequality and catastrophic risk. The development of technology is the crucial thing that in many ways will bind them closer together. For example, the fact that we don't have adequate health care everywhere, which is in large part due to poverty, means that diseases, 
that could be more easily controlled can become epidemics, which could become pandemics in an ever more interconnected world. Now, I should point out that I first wrote this in 2019. I'm now recording the script in February of 2020, where it looks like we are in the early stages of a pandemic of the uh, of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. And one of the things that's been really notable about COVID-19 is that in a lot of places, such as at the moment in Iran, for example, uh, this disease appears to be spreading in an unchecked way, in a way that's not monitored as much as in other countries with more robust healthcare systems. And because of how interconnected the world is, this is not a problem that will stay in the Wuhan city of China. This is a problem that has gone global straight away. And it just goes to show that an ever more interconnected world, you can't have a weak link in the chain anywhere when it comes to this sort of virus. You can't have any kind of uh, vulnerability um, because the potential is then that it will spread and go global and it will become everyone's problem. Uh, So we have Ebola, SARS, AIDS. These are illnesses which did first begin to take hold in places where the medical infrastructure was not the most robust in the world. Now, this is not as an insult to the people of Wuhan and the the sort of brave doctors who have been fighting this thing tooth and nail. The point is just to say clearly that what was once something that might have been considered a local problem is now very clearly a global problem. And hopefully by the time you hear this, we'll uh, we'll have better capabilities at uh, dealing with that particular problem. But this is a direct consequence of an unequal society. I mean, unequal societies lead to political instability. That raises the possibility of violent revolutions, civil wars, totalitarian governments. And this in turn can lead to proxy wars that can escalate into larger, more globally threatening conflicts. Societies that break down or are broken down can lead to extremism and a rise in terrorism. They lead to dictators who can behave in irrational and unstable ways. If you wanted to dream of someone who would pull the trigger on some supremely destructive bioweapon or nuclear weapon, dictators are usually who we conjure up as foils. And dictators, while societies disproportionately descend into dictatorship when things aren't going particularly well for them economically in terms of the inequality and so on. And this is increasingly a problem because of the technological advances. Consider the risks that we've discussed in previous episodes, like the advances in biotechnology, CRISPR-Cas9 or similar techniques could allow people to engineer pandemics that are far more deadly than anything that can occur naturally, or resurrect banished diseases, like smallpox, as bioweapons. There was a study recently that showed that all it took was a couple of researchers, a few hundred thousand dollars, and a decent-sized lab to use CRISPR to bring the horsepox virus once extinct back to life. The difference between a bioweapon and a nuclear weapon is that theoretically you won't require anything like the same raw materials and expertise to produce a bioweapon as you will a nuclear weapon. Uranium is closely guarded, but you can get much of what you might need to create a bioweapon through the mail. And again, just updating this and bringing it into the modern context, I thought it was really interesting with uh, this, again, this terrible incident of the novel strain of the Wuhan coronavirus. Because one of the first things that happened when this virus came out, before we knew necessarily anything about how deadly it would be, or how easily it would spread, or what its long-term effects would be, the first thing that happened was that researchers shared the genome of this virus on the internet. You can go and actually there's places where you can find the full genome that's been sequenced of this virus and you can track any changes or mutations because the concern with these viruses when they first uh, transfer into humans, which you'll remember from our Tail Twalki super virus uh, episode, our pandemic episode, the concern with these viruses as they first transmit into humans is that clearly they're mutating quite quickly and different strains of them could arise that could have different properties. Now, actually, interestingly, what does tend to happen with these viruses, at least historically, 
is that the viruses that are uh, less deadly and more virulent, that is to say, uh, they can spread more easily, but they're less deadly, tend to take over. And uh, that that's important um, from the perspective of humans. I mean, this happened for the swine flu uh, in 2009. There was initially quite a fatal strain that was going around, and a strain that was less fatal was the one that eventually won out and did actually manage to infect a surprisingly high proportion of the Earth's population. Um, and of course, you know, a number of people were killed by that, and it was terrible. But uh, it was not the truly, uh, extremely deadly uh, pandemic, much like the Spanish flu of 1918-19, that some had predicted. And part of that was because of these mutations. So to keep track of these mutations and see what they're doing, the first thing that all of these researchers did for the coronavirus was put up these sequenced genomes on the internet. Now that's great. That's great for collaboration because it means that researchers from across the world can uh, study the genome, they can work on what treatments might be effective, uh, they can figure out whether there's any antiviral drugs that will be useful, they can get to work developing the vaccine. But also, it was interesting to me that so early this genome was available online, and we've already talked about how uh, potential the potential exists for people to uh, once they have a genome, recreate a virus like horsepox. And so now it's clear this information is out of the bottle. And whatever the coronavirus is, however well humans do in containing it, and again, who knows by the time I get these episodes out when you'll be listening to this, um, we'll, we'll have to see what the situation is at that point. But um, the, the, the scary thing is that this genome will exist online. That information can't ever be repressed. And so it will be possible for people to recreate this virus in the lab should they want to, and use it for whatever reason. And when you see the impact that it's having, uh, concerns about the spread are having in terms of shutting down cities and so on, and uh, damaging economically uh, countries, it's, it's very clear, to me at least, that if someone had manufactured the ability to manufacture the coronavirus, they could release it in a city and disrupt that city and cause extreme damage. And this possibility... Essentially, I don't see anything that could stop people from doing that. And any emergent strain of virus that will show up anywhere, if the same approach is taken with sequencing the genome and putting it online, then, you know, two, three, four years down the road, maybe the outbreak is controlled, but the uh, the genome of the virus will be available. Um, and people, you know, I don't, as far as I know, and if someone is from a more, uh, more of a virologist or more of a uh, microbiologist and can tell me whether this is not true, but it seems to me very likely that someone would be able to recreate that virus, and it might not even necessarily take that much in terms of resources. And I think it's important to recognise that this is a trend that's happening across all kinds of different technology. It's not even necessarily a sinister thing. It's just that as technology advances and multiplies, there are always going to be more ways to weaponize it. It takes thousands of people to write the structure of the internet and programming language. It takes millions of people to rely on the internet and the infrastructure of the internet to give it its unique power. But maybe only one to write a really nasty computer virus that exploits a vulnerability and can wreak havoc. It took decades of scientific research initially to sequence the human genome. Now it can be done by a startup for a few hundred dollars. It might only take one person to design a supervirus or bring smallpox back. Technological development makes doing impossible things easier and more accessible. That's kind of the point. A single person would find it very difficult to design and build an autonomous drone from scratch, but it's hardly a huge leap once you have an autonomous drone, which may well be designed for perfectly innocent reasons, to strap some explosives to the back of it and tell it to go and kill someone. 
nanotechnology could go this way in the future, with open source platforms that will allow you to design and program your own nanobots. It would seem perhaps not beyond the realms of possibility for one person to design and program nanobots to self-replicate and destroy lives or property, like metal viruses. Uh, even if the grey goo scenario that people were originally worried about is uh, now considered less likely by experts. And we might have an episode talking about why that is, because I think it's very interesting to discuss this uh, this grey goo scenario, which is this classic idea that the nanotech takes over everything and dissolves everything into soup. Um, people are less worried about that than they once were. Uh, and it may well be that the technology to do that is not even possible, if, if not decades or centuries away. But the idea that you couldn't have some nanobots that could be quite destructive, that could be programmed by an individual, I, I don't see why that wouldn't happen. That seems like something like that will inevitably be developed, in my view. Now compare that to nuclear weapons, which can take the effort of entire states and many years to construct. It might take decades for a rogue state or a terrorist group to get nuclear capability. But developing bioweapons or cyber weapons can be done far more easily. And the group of people that I think about always when I think about this is uh, Om Shinrikyo, who I think we have talked about in the Teot Wauki specials. Uh, Om Shinrikyo being this uh, Japanese kind of death cult uh, in the 90s that were ultimately responsible for the sarin gas attacks on the Tokyo subway. And uh, one of the things that was very interesting about this cult was that they disproportionately attracted uh, intelligent and smart individuals, uh, people with PhDs, disaffected academics. I'm sure there's a lot of them around, to be honest. Um, who joined this cult, and they had what you might call omnicidal fantasies. The whole point of the cult was that they were going to destroy the world as it existed at the moment, or most of the people as they existed at the moment, uh, causing mass death, maybe triggering a nuclear war, and then out of the ashes, you know, Om Shinrikyo would rise as the the new uh, way for the human race. And uh, back then, they were trying to get a nuclear bomb, they were trying to source it from the Russians, and this organisation, even though they had access to millions of dollars and a lot of intelligent people, um, were unable to ultimately source a nuclear weapon. And they had to make do with uh, sarin gas. But they were also working on bioweapons in the 90s as well. And you can imagine that such an organisation, if it existed now and had access to the same resources now, uh, compared to 25 years ago, they would be able to wreak far more damage. I don't I don't see how that's not the case. Because all of the things they were trying to do in terms of constructing bioweapons, in terms of disrupting infrastructure, have got a lot easier. And in fact, as technology continues to advance in this way, as society becomes ever more interconnected or, and interwoven, the number of people you need to create and wield these weapons of potentially huge destructive power decreases. Which means that the number of people or groups who could hope to carry out this attack is likely to increase. This asymmetric warfare becomes more and more possible. When the first nuclear weapon was dropped on Hiroshima, humans knew that they would soon have the power to inflict unimaginable horror. When small groups or disgruntled individuals can cause similar damage, perhaps on a global scale, how will we control it? We may not always be able to remove the weapons from the hands of people who might use them, but we can remove the motives from their hearts. People who feel that they have a stake in society, who are contented in general, are less likely to be entertaining these omnicidal fantasies. They're less likely to be swayed by crime, terrorism, death cults, revolutionaries, all of these groups that may soon be terribly empowered by technology compared to where they are today. In a more equal world, with more stable governments and more prosperity, it will be easy to universally enforce whatever laws and regulations are required to prevent new threats from getting out of hand. By allowing social and economic inequality to continue and even to increase, leaving so many disenfranchised people behind, we are exposing ourselves to the risk of a disastrous future. 
And think about it this way. If I'm right, and if the development of technology inevitably means that more and more powerful resources are contrasted in fewer and fewer hands, and uh, this inequality continues, and they continue to be these disaffected groups, we, we, we really do face a rather stark choice, because the only alternative... I mean, the number one priority of, of governments is going to be to keep their citizens safe, as it always is. Uh, listeners in America, and indeed in the rest of the world, will remember what happened after 9-11 in terms of the uh, infringements on civil liberties that came about, um, some of which may have been justified, some of which people will argue about for a long time. Um, and it, it just seems clear to me that if these threats do multiply, and if there are major attacks that are even more devastating than what 9-11 was, then the response uh, on the behalf of governments, if these things happen, will be to become more totalitarian. And technology, in turn, will enable that. We know that technology, at the moment, is allowing for an unprecedented level of monitoring of our behaviour. Uh, we know that technology is allowing uh, for an unprecedented level of uh, influence of behaviour, uh, of control. And we know that... Uh, Trends, consumer trends, every sort of trend are going to lead us to increase with more sensors, more data, more machine learning algorithms combing through pieces of information, looking for various different things. And if it becomes justified by these increased threats, then it is almost as if our choices are between a totalitarian world and a world that's slightly more utopian, and, you know. I can see people will accuse me of splitting and classic black and white thinking and, you know, not taking into account the shades of grey and the various ways that this could evolve in some different, murkier way than I'm picturing at the moment. But I just think that when these forces are driving this inequality further and further and when these forces are driving technology to uh, create these risks that uh, we can't necessarily mitigate, um, you can you can very easily see how totalitarian states that would be enabled by technology, some of which we won't even be able to imagine right now, uh, that could get to the level that you had in uh, the classic totalitarian novels, I don't need to name them, you've read them, um, of, of the 20th century. This sort of technology is going to be feasible, and people will have a reason, a justification to deploy it. And that in turn is going to be a state where we have a perpetual source of inequality, because there will always then be the people who are controlling the mechanism of the totalitarian state, and the people who are on the other side. And so you have a real entrenched form of inequality there. And maybe the only way that can be uh, dispensed with is some through some other violent revolution or disastrous event. And we're back to Scheidel's theory. So, you know, technology like the internet has allowed for the spread of terrorist propaganda. The interconnectedness of society has meant that we can be vulnerable to attacks from any number of different places. And uh, maybe someday the smallpox genome will be transmitted via the internet to anyone who might want to use it. The internet as a revolutionary technology has also allowed for the spread of other ideas, positive ideas. It's democratic. People can, if they stop flinging mud at each other for five minutes, learn and debate. There's a reason that authoritarian states do always seek to control the flow of information, because they're afraid of what it might do. So what is this really an argument for? Clearly being Luddites, smashing up modern technology entirely, is not an option. I mean, we, we have gone too far down this road at this point to attempt to live in a non-technological society. Um, it, it, for so many different reasons, it's just impossible to see how we can ever get back to a uh, naive state. Pandora's box is open on this stuff. Uh, if you decide for some reason that your 
group of people is going to abandon technology, then you will be overtaken and swamped by the people who continue to use it. And it's these forces that will actually f- form a big part in um, in accelerating uh, the requirement for people to use different types of technology. And you know, if you if you don't believe that, just try getting a job nowadays without having access to the internet or access to email, uh, refusing to use a computer. Try doing that and see how far it gets you. So obviously what we want here is the dream compromise. Well-regulated, carefully controlled, responsibly deployed technology. Hurrah! And this requires people to get serious about understanding what new and disruptive technologies are and aren't capable of, and seeing where they can and should be regulated, and seeing what we can and should do about them. So one of the other points I think we can make here about something that is a little bit more controversial uh, is one of the other ways in which people have indicated that technological development might potentially enhance inequality. And I want to say that I'm a lot more sceptical on this area than some of the people who've proposed it, but I mention it here purely to point out that it's another example of how technology in the future uh, could potentially act to enhance inequality, and why I think, why I feel so strongly that there might not be that many developments in technology that are going to reduce this inequality. And uh, this is the idea of uh, enhancing humanity. So, I mean, one really popular uh, advocate of this recently was Yuval Noah Harari in his book Homo Deus, uh, which talks about this idea more generally. And the idea basically is, okay, uh, let's imagine we get better at neuroscience, we get better at understanding uh, the consequences of genetics, um, we get better at uh, understanding the causes of uh, the genetic links uh, to human intelligence, if there are any, if there are dominant ones that we can understand and contemplate, or that we start developing cognitive enhancement drugs, for example, uh, that make people focus harder. And I should point out, this is not as far away as you think. There are a lot of people in the city, uh, in academia, in all sorts of different fields, who use uh, cognitive enhancement drugs in the form of things like modafinil, uh, which is a sort of anti-ADHD drug when it's prescribed, but is used by a lot of people to allow them to stay awake for extended periods of time. Um, I myself use caffeine quite extensively to allow myself to perform uh, at a higher rate than I would be able to otherwise, although of course there are questions about whether caffeine actually makes you more focused or just slightly more manic. I will leave that up to you listening to the last few episodes to see what you think about that. But um, I haven't had any coffee for a while now actually, so maybe I should go and get my own cognitive enhancement drug and get back on track with this thing. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is if these things become possible, if, God forbid, people start deciding that eugenics is a good idea and they decide that they will be capable of uh, understanding the very complex genetic influences on intelligence, then there is a potential and there is a concern by a lot of people who are saying that, well, if these cognitive enhancers become available, if these uh, techniques for screening embryos become fashionable or whatever if people start doing this stuff then it could lead to a vicious cycle where everyone is forced into either enhancing themselves in one way or another or uh, or else not enhancing themselves and you know i think again we have to be clear this is not necessarily the future here that we're talking about okay this is not necessarily something too far away from what we have at the moment I mean, in your country, in my country, you probably know already that it's possible to have public healthcare and it's possible to have private healthcare. And quite often, if you're willing to pay thousands and thousands of pounds for private healthcare, you'll be seen more quickly 
than you will be with public healthcare. And similarly, there's private education and there's public education. Uh, I went to a state school. Um, I was actually, you know, I was given the option to go to a private school. I didn't want to. Um, it was sort of me acting out on principle, I suppose. But uh, I don't think that the advantages you get from a private school are necessarily worth the, uh, the cash that you pay for it. Unless, of course, you're talking about the social and networking advantages, which I think is what a lot of people are uh, convinced about, just sort of segregation between two groups of people in society, uh, which you enforce with money, if you can. And I think those advantages may well be worth the money, uh, depending on what the people uh, tend to use them for. I'm not really a networker. I sort of make my own way in things um, to vary, with varying degrees of success, as you may have noticed. The point is, private education, private healthcare, Already, there exist things in the world where you can pay money, and in exchange for that money, you will get, arguably, a better quality of life. If you're trying to go into work with some chronic health condition that you can't get seen to on your public health care, or if you're in the US and you can't afford insurance and you don't want to go in an ambulance because you know that it will bankrupt you, then you will be performing less well at your job, presumably, than someone who's the equivalent in every other way, but can afford to get as much healthcare as they need and get all of their problems seen to and have all the diagnostic tests and get everything dealt with when it's really early uh, early stages as opposed to something much later on. I mean, you know, I, I am at the moment suffering from some, some health conditions that are taking quite a while to sort out and I can appreciate that, you know, if I was in a position where I had thousands upon thousands of dollars and I could just go and get all these diagnostic tests done without even thinking about it, uh, without giving it a second thought, then maybe I would have had my problems fixed, or maybe not, but maybe I would have done, and then maybe I would have been able to uh, get these podcasts out to you more quickly. Do you see what I mean? So that's a very early stage of something that could become much more uh, advanced in the future with more technologies, whereby people can pay for better quality of life, uh, people can pay to perform better, and it's going to increase inequality because people will be able to... Um, almost form this kind of two-tiered society people imagine of an enhanced human race and a less enhanced human race in one way or another. And if you don't think this is going to happen, I just I just question why that is. I question what it is that makes you so convinced that people wouldn't go down this route. Because I think the way society is set up at the moment, unfortunately, is going to incentivize people to do that. And so the only, the only grounds on which I will accept people questioning it is saying this technology isn't feasible. And I think that's that may well be true because we don't know necessarily whether something like modafinil really does make you perform better or whether it just uh, gives you heart palpitations. You know, We don't necessarily know whether there's going to be some solid link between genetics and IQ that we could even deal with if we wanted to. At the moment, you know, we don't know the genes that control people's eye colour properly. So if your argument is, I don't think this technology is feasible, and by the way, I'm an evolutionary biologist so I would know, then I... I put my hands up, you could well be right. But there are already ways in which people can give themselves an advantage if they have the money to begin with. That that much, I think, should be clear. And if that sort of thing continues, if those trends continue, then you can imagine that inequality is only going to be exacerbated. And so we have this link, technology drives inequality, inequality makes catastrophic risks more likely, and technology allows people driven by this inequality to lead to these catastrophic risks. So it's this triad of technology, inequality, and catastrophic risks that all seem to, to come together, in my mind, in this, in this triangle. 
but there are some other notable points to say that you know there are aspects in which um the changes in society are making these things less likely so one example is uh what motivation do superpowers have to go to war with each other in the modern era in the old days it was simple the roman empire invaded dacia because they had some really awesome gold and silver mines and when they invaded they carted off the natural resources the same was true of the so-called barbarians who raided the roman empire but increased technology has meant that wealth and economic value is more immaterial than material so if Russia sent an army into Silicon Valley and occupied the offices of Facebook and Google and so on, they don't obtain the power and value of these companies. The, the value of a company like a Facebook or a Google is based on the data they have, the, the intellectual property they have, the brand loyalty they have, the reputation they have. So the cost of waging a war to take over the companies of Facebook and Google would far outweigh the benefits, which is one of the main reasons why the scenario is so silly. No one is going to invade Silicon Valley to try and take over these companies by force. Our globally interconnected financial system would suffer in a globally destructive war, and as we've seen many times, when these globally destructive wars happen, ultimately everyone gets poorer, even the victors. Um, although their economies can be boosted quite substantially when they win. In less technologically developed societies, where wealth is more about material possessions and physical things you control, the slices of the pie that you're keeping from everyone else, so to speak, there's more motivation to go to war before you even get into the nuclear deterrent that stops people from uh, more economically developed countries from attacking each other. So in this sense, technology and economic development more generally might reduce the motivations for wars. And uh, it, it increases the speed and response technology does of international responses. A universal translation machine would allow governments to coordinate even more easily, and such a device might only be a few years away. Indeed, translators of the sort are already getting better increasingly. Although you might go with the Douglas Adams idea that by allowing everyone to understand each other, the Babelfish, the universal translator in the Hitchhiker's Guidebooks, Actually, because people could understand each other, it was, it was responsible for more and bloodier wars than any other species in the universe's history. Real-time communications, we've talked about this already with the coronavirus, allow several countries to coordinate responses to new epidemics and this kind of thing. And technology can act in ways that reduce inequality, making it easier for everyone to live a similar standard of life too. It's certainly not an entirely one-way street that we're talking about here. 